This podcast is the ninth episode of Nova Writers The Warm Up. Nova Writers is a monthly event organized by Spike Island in partnership with Bristol Festival of Ideas. Today, I received Adam Scovel for his first novel, Most Light, published by Influx Press in February 2019. Welcome in Novel Writers, the warm-up, Adam, and thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I will have the honor to interview Adam tonight in front of an audience in the cafe of Spike Island in Bristol, and we will discuss thoroughly about Most Light, its themes, its style, and its photographies as well. But for now, in this podcast, we will focus on your writing techniques and your writing processes in general. Adam Scoville, you are British. You have lived in Merseyside for many years and you are now located in London, mm-hmm. if I'm right. yeah. According to the internet and uh, according to your own website as well, you work on a PhD in film music and transcendental style at the University University of Liverpool and Goldsmiths. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have published an essay on folk horror and a lot of articles on movies, cinema and art in great newspapers and in magazines and uh, on the cellulo- celluloid, sorry, the <laughs> celluloid weekend man, which is the name of your website and that I recommend to all of you who are listening to us. Um, so according to this background, so writing essays and articles, Um, I guess that writing theory is a big part of your life and I was wondering why you have chosen to write your first novel. Why a novel? Why fiction this time? I think there are a lot of parameters I found on not just essay writing but in particular my PhD in which every single point or sentence or facet or argument had to be heavily footnoted and argued and to the point where it was very, uh, almost stifling and uh, very clinical. There was no way you could say something that was purely meant to be uh, of, say, a rhythm or uh, of a tone without it having to be argued as being present in the first place. And I found with fiction that even though it has its own rules and regulations which you can bend or break or adhere to, there was a lot less um, baggage to deal with than academic writing in particular and the ideas I wanted to explore could have been explored in an academic essay but I thought it would have been quite dry and I've, I've found that actually I've, there are a lot more things have come up in as I've been writing more and more fiction publicly that uh, is more suited to, to, to fiction writing in general rather than essays but I kind of like to blend the two anyway I think it's not straightforward uh, fiction. And when did you start to write fiction? Is that did you write when during the process of your PhD, or did you write fiction before that when you were a kid or yeah, a teenager? I think actually uh, I've been writing fiction for longer than anything. I've oh, been okay. I've been doing in terms of what people associate that, me with. Uh, I've been <laughs> writing fiction longer than I've played music, longer than I've been in in the academy and in in, in uh, universities uh, and and filmmaking as well. Uh, but I've just been incredibly. Uh, shy in many regards about sharing it more and more and it was only uh, during the very early stages of my PhD uh, maybe perhaps my late master's 
when I started reading novels by uh, Thomas Bernhardt that I actually felt a, an urge again to actually explore things through fiction and his writing in particular I found a form which spoke to me I didn't want to just replicate it or just or back or even bounce off it but it was a form that had potential that I thought oh actually I can explore this in my own way and I, I wrote Mothlight in particular the tail end of my PhD which was probably not the best idea at the end of a PhD writing another book but um, <laughs> it happened <laughs> not that the way. only one I think you're the second of the third writer uh, who's been on this coach uh, of novel writers uh, podcast and who said to me like I was so bored with my <laughs> academic uh, thesis that I had to find something else to write, so I write. I wrote fiction. I think it's a natural outlet because you are so focused. It's it, you, you're you're becoming almost an expert in in a very sort of magnified look uh, in one particular subject, and it can be very tunnel visioned in a good way and in a bad way. And there is a frustration there. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, Teju Cole, I think, did the same thing where he was studying for his PhD and I think he wrote Open City during it as well it just it just naturally comes out because you feel this sense of release you want to just escape from the referencing and the footnoting <laughs> and everything else and, and and fiction is a great way to just get through that that process but I actually I actually wrote two books during my PhD which is even uh, an even worse idea <laughs> for writing yeah. one and uh, when do you sleep <laughs> i well this is the thing i didn't when i when i wrote the the, the previous one which was not a fiction it was a it was a semi-academic uh non-fiction the um yeah the, yeah. the, the, the folk horror one um that process of trying to write that book and the phd just caused a massive breakdown it was too much it's, mm. and it's so it's not something i actually recommend but with fiction i think there's a sort of lighter tone to it which is very cathartic when you're in that especially that intense stage of preparing for your viva and proofing the uh thesis itself and going for any corrections at, at some point you need a release and for some people that's different things they go and perform music which would have been very natural for me because my phd was in music but i found fiction to be a good outlet do you think that, um, because when you write a PhD, uh, you learn a lot about writing in a certain way, in an academic way, do you think that it was also useful for shaping you as a writer, as a fiction writer? Do you use the same tools? Do you think it helped you? I think on, on two levels it did. The first was simply engaging with theory. Um, engaging with aesthetic theory in particular was very helpful. This book... I mean, Mothlight in particular came out of uh, in, uh, looking into theories of Jacques Derrida. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the initial. It didn't come from anything else, first of all. It was, it was a particular theory by Jacques Derrida. And I wouldn't have come across that theory if it wasn't for my, my, my PhD, because I was looking at all sorts of, the whole spectrum of post-structuralist ideas as well. Uh, on another level, yeah, there's the uh, bare-bone techniques of, uh, of sentence structure. Though I hasten to add that often that sentence structure is the absolute opposite of what publishers are often looking for and I, I remember I was in conversations with uh, one of the one of the big publishers well before uh, uh, the novels uh, about about a book and we got to the stage where I had written a treatment of 10,000 words and we were batting it back and forth with the editor and then it, it got cut off by the editor above the editor I was working with because the tone was still too academic and that was the phrase they used it's too academic um, so it was a double-edged sword. I knew how to write, but there was also a, a type of writing which um, 
which I think a lot of publishers uh, are, are, are quite naturally uh, averse to because it is writing for the academy is not the same as writing for an audience. It's a very specific writing mm-hmm. and it can be uh, a burden as much as uh, a blessing, I think. It's a double-edged sword. And maybe because I'm very ignorant in uh, what is what it means to study uh, how how you say film music and transcendental styles, <laughs> but I'm wondering, um, did you get any anything close to creative writing courses during those studies? Um, no, I don't think we did. We had a couple of different workshops because universities love to to have workshops it's one of the things that universities like to do whether they whether it's helpful or not i think okay and um <laughs> why not <laughs> well most of the workshops were down to the nuts and bolts of academic life mainly referencing um and and formatting and uh they, i think they assume that by the time you're at that level if you've gone for an undergrad and a master's that they'll be on some level no matter what your phd is and you will be able to write on some level and it's down to your supervisor to say I don't know what that means. You're waffling. You're not being detailed enough, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there, there wasn't any at all. Most of my, most of my engagement with, with, with learning about how to write fiction was through reading and mm. my own reading and through picking apart what was working for me and what wasn't working for me and the things I liked about books that were being published and what I certainly didn't like about books that were being published and figuring out what I liked. Um, so not nothing specifically taught. I, I hasten to add. I think. When you started to to have this idea of, of a novel during your PhD, did you turn into creative writing books? I'm asking because as a as a person who is fascinated with creative writing techniques, I tend to think that the best tools on creative writing are the uh, technique books uh, for screenwriters. They are amazing. They are so practical. They are so interesting. And it's usually they are usually much better and much more practical than creative writing books for writers. Mm. I was wondering if you read any of these books or if you were any interested in these books. Well, my, my, my back with my background being partly in film anywhere, I have read a couple of those books, mm. and I think one of the one of the the things that really struck me was actually reading um, uh, Alan Rodriguez's *Cine uh, Roma* uh, okay, of wow. last year of last year in Marienbad, because. Even though it was uh, effectively the film script for the film he made with Alan Rennie, um, put with stills of the film, it, it was meant to function uh, on 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 a, on a reading level as well. It wasn't just a, a a cash in to publish this this script for a film. It was meant to be read, and just reading that book alone showed you the bare bones mechanics of what was needed, and importantly for me in particular, how photographs could fill in gaps or do the work on, on a certain level, which meant you could concentrate on other things. Uh, so not necessarily writing technique books, but certainly books outside of novels fed in. Uh, and of course, when I said um, uh, in terms of theory as well, I was reading a lot of Jack Derrida and a lot of Jack Derrida's books were about taking apart language and literature in particular. The, his essay on the, the Purloin letter by Edgar Allan Poe was pretty important to me at, at some point. And I remember thinking, oh, I quite like my fiction to not only be engaged with on that sort of level, but actually I'd like my fiction to engage with the subject on that level and that style as well and see what can come out of it. I think we call it theory fiction, I think, as a, as a genre, the term is being 
thrown about at the moment and I kind of like that, that mix of different things feeding in and not it just being a classical um, structure of a novel and what we expect from language and narrative. Absolutely. Where at that stage did you have one or two writers that you loved the fiction and that you wanted that you learned from the fiction? Uh, what I'm trying to say is that is did you have writers that you love and you wanted to copy not necessarily for the topics they talk about but for the type of f fiction they were doing? Yeah, there were three. Um, there were three that fed into the f first novel. Uh, the first was the one I've just mentioned, Thomas Bernhardt. Yeah, exactly. And in particular, his book uh, Extinction, which is this manic 300-page monologue split into, I think, two sections. Or In fact, it might even just be two paragraphs over 300 okay. pages. <laughs> uh, and that, that, the rhythm of Bernhardt was... He engaged with my, 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 my head voice, if you like, in a way that I don't think a writer has done since, which is either a good thing or a bad thing. I don't, I don't know, but uh, uh, reading that certainly was pivotal. But also... Um, W.G. Zabel's novels, uh, his voice was very hard and still is very hard to shut off because it's pro he's probably my favourite writer, I think, and I engage with his work roughly from my undergrad right through my whole academic life. He's always been there as I've been learning, so he's sort of seeped into things. And the final one was Virginia Woolf, and in particular The Waves. Yeah, um, there is a quotation at the beginning and at the end uh, yeah. of, of most likely. Yeah, there's a, a, there's a quote from uh, her essay on the death of Moth. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, her writing generally for me was, was pretty pivotal, but in particular The Waves. The Waves was a real tangible attempt to capture perception through language and through implication. There's a whole invisible thing which is, by the end of it, kind of tangibly there, but it's not been stated. And that was uh, that was amazing. How did she do that through language? I was so, so jealous and envious. So yeah, those three. Yeah, I think we are a lot. <clears throat> lot of us are jealous of because <laughs> <laughs> she has a way of of saying so much by saying so few, mm. which is overwhelming and heartbreaking at the same time. Well, <laughs> she's one of my big stars. <laughs> um, very, very basic question. I think you started to talk about that a bit uh, earlier on. Um, you are a quite busy person. <laughs> As uh, everybody who works in academics, it can be very time-consuming. And um, I wonder, I wonder how you find you found the time and the place to to write most light at the same time. It was about routine in many regards. Um, there was no way I could do it if I just. Um, just went to it when I was feeling creative or when I had an idea. I had, it's, it's something that J.G. Ballard said, you, you have a routine and you stick with it, and he stuck with it rigidly. Uh, and I, I, I totally agree that the, you have a set time where you sit down and no matter how awful or painful it is, you, you write, at least in that period of my life, because I had to spend at least three or four hours of the day doing PhD stuff and then a bit of freelance writing and then all the other bits and bobs. And... I needed that hours, two hours, maybe in the afternoon to sit down and basically smash out a terrible, terrible version of Mothlight. Oh, um, you make me feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think especially, especially in an age where we're so time strapped anyway, not just if you're in academics or if, even if you're just in another job, we are so time constrained. And I think 
it's it's it, it, in many ways it's a privilege to be able to write whenever you want and that could be your career that'd be great but i don't think it works like that for most people so you have to say right i'm going to sit there for two hours in the morning and even if i only write a paragraph if it if it's like they're getting blood out of a stone i've done it and that's the only way it's going to get done but it is, in the end it's it's very manual people forget how manual i think it is sometimes how exhausting just the typing out as something that is completely of itself is it is draining but you've got to set aside that time so that's how i think it's just routine and you get locked into it and it can make you very antisocial and not the best of partners and <laughs> everything else and you become a hermit and i think alan garner the writer has spoken about this in particular you become this sort of big child and you are locked to your desk for that for that period of time and but i think there unless you're incredibly wealthy and can just you know faff about but whatever you like and come to it whenever you've got you know the the moment of inspiration happens i think for the majority everyone needs to you know have that lockdown time and just stick at it for me because i am right now in the process of writing the first draft of a novel mm. I realize that 99% of the time when I'm writing, I write so much shit. Mm -hmm. And it makes me feel so happy because <laughs> as long as I'm writing, I know I'm in the right process. Mm -hmm. right? As you said before, what matters is to find like the good rhythm that you have to stick to it and write very uh, every day if you can or every week, mm -hmm. depending on your, your life and, and uh, obligations. And... And being okay with, uh, I, I'll try to focus more on having a good rhythm than trying to be good every time I'm at I'm on my desk or on my mm -hmm. computer. Because if you ask yourself to be good every time you go on your desk or on your computer, you won't go back to your desk mm -hmm. or your computer. Oh, it's going to be too, too much pressure. If you're expecting a masterpiece to just appear in front of you every yeah. five minutes, I mean, I mean I'm sure that has happened for someone somewhere at some point in history, but... I'd be very surprised to generally, uh, especially today, the amount of different factors playing into our lives if that was to happen. I don't think it, I don't think it does. Uh, and most of the time when people weave that story, it just came, it was just this moment. I often think that that's the marketing department's uh, yeah. strings being pulled there. It doesn't happen like that at all. And no. mo most writers that don't say that writing is difficult are either people who have sold a lot of books and it's not difficult anymore because they don't have to have that pressure financially behind them. Mm. Or I, I generally think that they're telling buggies. I don't think, that, I don't think they're telling the truth. It is a difficult thing to do, mm -hmm. um, no matter what anyone says. But it is rewarding and uh, I certainly wouldn't want to do anything else for the time being. Do you have any working or writing process in the sense that do you plan before you write? Or you're only working process is to tell yourself I'm going to write two hours per day and that's it I think it does require a lot of research for, for what I write at least mm. um, I need to know the place first so the, the location location is so yeah. important so I need to walk around the place often or have already walked around it or, or understand it the next book I've been working on is all has, has come about from these walks around Uh, the city of Strasbourg and, and walking around the streets endlessly and endlessly until the, the the natural things happen where I was noticing coincidences in the history and the connections between places and, and the history and people um, and I couldn't have 
begun even considering that writing process without that. It just came out of that process. And that's when I, I started to then research the history of it. And that took its own time. And then I locked myself into that routine and fired out 70,000 terrible words <laughs> and a couple of little fragments because it's quite a fragmented novel and kept going back to it back and forth and cutting things and it was a very very um it's a very messy process in terms of getting it down on paper but in terms of having the structure in my head it was very linear because it was all walked it was all walked very naturally uh, so place comes first that that engagement with place is very 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 important place and research and then do you build up a plan or do you let the story lead you wherever you want wherever There's it wants to lead plan. you There's definitely a basic plan i can't I, i i can't not know where it's going overall in its arc um but the great thing with um with using in particular real history which i've done for the next one is that it's the research brings up its own avenues to explore so I was walking around Strasbourg, I noticed a plaque that commemorated Goethe spending time in the city. That in itself fed into the character, discovering that, and then by discovering that she becomes obsessed with finding out about Goethe's time in Strasbourg and then it dramatizes that time through her researching it and it was just, it just spiraled off. Um, so that whole process began with just that walk. Um, And then just bloomed uh, through the research in itself. And then the writing was quite pleasant, actually, after that, because you had all this material to think, like, how is she engaging with this history? What is she thinking about it? What is the history itself? I need to, I can't just say that she's interested in it. I need to say, well, Goethe had this uh, this love affair with a woman called Frederick Brion and and then he, he's going to Sessenheim and then why is she looking into this you know so it's, it's just endless so the research can actually be a really helpful writing tool in the very process of, of writing it can make it uh, it can make writing a lot easier I think do you write a lot of drafts yes <laughs> and in particular um, I work back and forth a lot on the drafts with the publisher once they've taken it. Mothlight started out at 60,000 words and the response to it from agents and other publishers was pretty poor. And it changed dramatically when I chatted briefly with Max Porter uh, just after he had... Uh, a grief is a thing with feathers came out and he's basically his main advice was to just slash and burn cut it down make it a much smaller book uh, and, and I did that process initially I, I cut it down by 20,000 words just it just went okay wow and then uh, uh, influx took it but then the process again went through about eight edits with them to the point where it was only down to about 35,000 okay. and it was heavily restructured re-edited so not only was I editing it heavily myself, but it needed the publisher and a new pair of eyes over it to round it off into something that could be published, I think. Uh, I made the mistake, I think, of sending it out at 60,000 words. I was just desperate to get it out there. Mm -hmm. And it was it was it, quite uh, soul-destroying trying to sell this book and just the response being the same and again and again. Mm -hmm. It was too difficult. It was too long in its form. Uh, even at 60,000 words, which isn't very long, I don't think, for a novel. Yeah, I don't think it is. Um, but 
yeah. with the style of prose, I mm-hmm. think it, it was, especially because the main theme at that point in the book was OCD. So it was going about these uh, recursions and circular uh, sentences again and again, and it was probably too accurate, I think, okay. uh, in the mindset of someone with OCD. Uh, and it was, there's, there's a line between being accurate in your recreation of something and making sure it's still able to be engaged with. And mm. it, that, across the line, it was just too accurate and not pleasant at all to be around, I think. Mm. Uh, I think one person at Granter in particular described it as sort of trudging through mud <laughs> uh, at that stage, at least. And they were totally right. Uh, so it needed basically cutting in half. Which was is... it a painful process for you to have to take so many words out of your novel um, oh, what did, because some people find it quite liberating you know quite I found it, I found it liberating in the end actually because I realized that the story was far not simpler I suppose but it could be streamlined and made more effective by it and it took someone else to tell me that mm-hmm. uh, because you can get very locked into your work um, uh, I can I can understand why writers can be very edgy about having their work cut down. I'm quite edgy about that with my with my freelance work, actually, my, my essays, my shorter essays for, I don't know, British Film Institute or whatever, because it's it's a tightly compact, usually about a thousand words, and it's designed to be tightly compact, and changes can really disrupt it, I think. Um, so I, I, I'm a bit more protective over it, but with a novel, it's better to heed the advice and say, yeah, okay, this needs... But and the same has happened for the next book as well. It's gone... It's gone very visceral, actually, in the edit. It was quite a dry book, I think, initially, and it's gone down these really quite dark places just through the feedback. You know, like, right, I'm going to push this forward. I'm going to take that back and make it quite uh, violent in parts and quite and very, very, very dark in parts. Uh, and that was not how it started when they originally bought it uh, at its first edit with, with them. So uh, editing with a publisher and an agent or whoever else can be very, very helpful, I think. Yeah, so you, you enjoyed the process of working in collaboration with Certainly. either your agent or your, your Yeah, publisher. I don't actually I don't actually have an agent. But yeah, you are one of the very few British writers who doesn't have an agent. And it's not as if I haven't tried, admittedly. Um, when I was trying to sell Moth Light, I approached about half a dozen in, in succession. And most of the time, the response was, I just don't see where this is going to sit in the market, which is... Do you think it's because, response. and I'm saying something probably very stupid, um, I believe sometimes agents might be afraid of writers with an academic background. I certainly think that was the case with Moflight because the longer version was far more academically inclined in tone in terms of the writing and the repetitions were quite... Uh, it was very much written in that theoretical style and deliberately so. Um, but that there's also the also case that um, a lot of agents will be looking for things which they know can sit on the shelf at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they come across a book that, even if they like it and think it's got many merits, they can't see that place where it's going to sit on the shelf, or that, or more importantly, that audience is going to buy it, uh, then their alarm bells ring far more early than uh, publishers mm-hmm. tend to. Um, and that, that's that's just that's just the way it's been for my, my my fiction. I've had very nice things said to me about my work by by agents, but they still can't see where it where it sits and, and a lot of my writers friends have had that as well you know um, and not just with agents but with publishers I mean uh, Ben Myers is a good example he's been with the same indie publisher for 10 years and it took those 10 years before him winning the Walter Scott Prize and then his book being bought up by Bloomsbury to go through that process of actually having you know a much bigger success and a much more deserved success I think you know he's been under the radar for 
I think, far too long because the industry just couldn't see where uh, his books were meant to sit, when in reality a lot of people that were reading it, people like me, could see completely clearly because it was about places that we knew because for whatever reason we engaged with it in a way which was uh, he was aiming for. Um, so I think sometimes the industry can be quite slow to pick up on things because they're in that they're in that very and they need to be in that very tunnel visioned uh, idea of of the how the market looks and where a book sits in the market and you know it, it benefits some writers and doesn't benefit others and, and i'm one of the ones that doesn't benefit from it because i've got no agent but i mean i'm quite happy with being with influx and influx look after me in a really sort of agency way they they think they edit my work in a, a really detailed way which i think would probably happen uh, on some level with an agent they do more i think because they know i haven't got an agent and it needs that extra push so i'm very grateful to have actually <laughs> found influx and have been working with them what do you think uh, is going to be one of my final questions um what do you think is the is the most difficult for you when it comes to to writing and what is the easiest um I think I think the easiest. It's ironic considering we've just been saying how difficult writing is, but I think the easiest part is actually the writing. Okay, well you're not you're uh, one uh, of the first one to say that. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> I, I think I think actually when you're there alone, the easiest thing is writing. The hardest thing I find or have found so far to get on the chair. No, <laughs> is to is is to, is to actually do you know go go and sell the book. And oh, all the yeah. things after the book, we, we were talking about it earlier, the, the events, the touring of the book, mm. reading from the book. Um, I find that far more difficult than actually sitting down to write. And it's probably just the, the, the way that I am, but the, the idea of having to, when you spend you know, a year or more writing this thing and then a, a year editing it, and then it's out and you've got to still talk about it again and again and again. I find that far more difficult than actually writing it itself. And I know quite a few writers who've, said the same thing that it's it's far more yeah. difficult to go and read your work than it is to actually write it in the first place no matter what people say it is it is very difficult what we ask for writers is they because writers uh, most of them know and are very aware of the state of the market right now so mm -hmm. if they don't sell their books their books won't, their books won't yeah, exactly. sold, be sold by be sold by by themselves they have to have to go on stage and sell them uh but as writers we are not made for that it's mm. not it is not the thing we want to do, and it's not what we are usually good at. No, so true. it is a, a painful process for most writers to to believe in their work in front of the audience. Yeah, I think that's that that's put it perfectly. I think that's exactly how what I find hard. Mm -hmm. I find hard because because especially because like my books are written in monologue, they're in that first person voice. That there is a sense, there's a pressure to almost perform it, and it's not totally alien to me, but it's definitely out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm far more comfortable at my desk, surrounded by photographs that I'm using or bits of research and mm -hmm. putting it together. I find that far more, far more relaxing and far easier than then six months later coming to a place and and, and reading it. <laughs> um, yeah. But that that feel, it sounds daft, but that feels far more difficult to me. But I'm sure plenty of writers will say the opposite and say that writing is laborious and it is very very difficult, <laughs> which it is in on some level of course. It really it really depends and. And sometimes I had writers here who used the book in order to say something loud to the world. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a bad thing to do. I mean, it's just a different type of writer. So they are really comfortable on stage or mm -hmm. they are really comfortable in front of the microphone because the reason why they wrote this book is to say, to tell that truth mm -hmm. to the world. 
And so they are very, you know, enthusiastic of being here and, and being harassed by Christian. Like they want, <laughs> they want that. So it, it's, it's really, it really depends uh, on the motivation you had uh, to write your book. And uh, by saying that, I don't, I'm not saying that there are bad motivation and good motivation. Every writer is different. So <laughs> and I, I want to hear them all. So that's good. Um, I think my my last question was supposed to be, are you working on a next novel? But you said at multiple times during this talk that you already had written yeah. another novel after Mothlight. Yes, two. Two, yeah, that's good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think that writing Mothlight... Uh, taught you some technical uh, stuff that you had used again for your next books? I think it actually, writing it and especially reading it out loud at events after it has shown me things I I, I haven't done in the next one. So the it's next not month. entirely a bad thing to no, have to exactly. read out loud. <laughs> it's still part of the process. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I, read out the, the, I read out loud the work anyway, even when I'm not in front of an audience, to, to see how it sounds, because there is that sense that you will have to do it at some point anyway. But um, when I was preparing my first reading of Moth Lights, there was certain writing ticks of mine that I got through, I think, even in the edit, and I was acutely aware of them. And then when I was going back over the edit for the next one, I could see them again. So I was cutting them. I kept saying, I kept putting briefly, the word briefly into sentences. I wanted everything to be brief. Nothing could be confirmed. It was all briefly. It was like, <laughs> it was this really uh, ephemeral way of seeing the world. Everything was briefly there. And I was reading oh through, God. I was reading through the next book and everything was briefly again, like, no, it needs to be firmer. So I was deleting all these, these brieflies in the edit. So it highlighted, Moth Light highlighted things that I didn't want to get through this time and it needed to be written that way. And, and even for the third one, actually, by the, the third one, because Mothlight is so actually ephemeral as a book and is quite light and mm -hmm. you can't quite grasp it because it's deliberately um, ambiguous and, and not quite there, it's very ghostly. Mm -hmm. By the third one, which has already been drafted now, it's the, it's the opposite, it's very solid. It's very, it's actually very working class. It's very, very Northern, Northern England. It's very visceral in many regards it's the total it's 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 the same voice in many regards because they're both me on one sense but it's very it's far less ephemeral than Mothlight and I think it's almost a reaction to the fact that Mothlight has been very ambiguous <laughs> and people have treated it as very ambiguous and be like well why, what did you mean when you said this and you get you get a bit like well I'm not going to interpret it for you so this mm. has been a very solid <laughs> a very solid book so yeah Mothlight is writing it has, has changed my writing in, in many ways I think I can relate to you when you say uh, that you use the word briefly everywhere, because <laughs> for me, all of my character, all of my characters seems to be something. They, they are not something. They always seem, seem to, to be. be. <laughs> it is extremely tiring for me to reread my work and realize that I'm not quite sure about what they are. They only seem to be something. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you so much for your time, oh, uh, Adam Scovel. Uh, we are now heading to Spike Island Cafe in Bristol and uh, you will read some extracts of your first published, no published novel, Most Light, and we will discuss it together and with the audience tonight as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I am now talking to our dear listeners. If you like this podcast, please let us know by subscribing, sharing and liking. You can find us on all the podcast platforms under the name Nova Writers The Warm-Up. And we'll be happy to have your opinions on the Twitter page of Spike Island or on my page at Fuster Julie.